Okay, please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38. The next three messages in Ezekiel, um, if I may put it this way, are going to be a a tad bit more academic than maybe you're used to, particularly the next two, um, are very descriptive. It's almost more like an architectural diagram than it is anything else. Uh, This message will be a little bit bit less so, um, but there's a lot that we need to cover, and I couldn't in good conscience, not cover it the way the scriptures do. And uh, so I trust that um, if it's not your thing, as we get a little more uh, descriptive, a little more academic, maybe a little bit less uh, um, deep spiritual truths, that you will um, appreciate the, the fact that that is where we find ourselves in the scriptures right now. And that it is indeed as well a means to an end, as we will make spiritual application, and then as we unfold the entirety of what's going on in the text, um, the spiritual application will really, in many ways, speak for itself. We come to a somewhat unique portion of Scripture in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's a portion of prophecy which is yet to be fulfilled, and it was given as a part of that final prophecy uh, beginning in Ezekiel 33:21 the day that the city of Jerusalem was smitten. Now, there will be one more set of dates, but this, was, this is really that final big chunk. And then the next chunk is, is a, a, a very unique. As I said, it's almost more architectural than it is scriptural when you read through it, as we're going to be seeing a lot of measurements, walking through a lot of uh, um, the description of a building. Since the time that Ezekiel began this prophecy... All of the prophecies in Ezekiel uh, 33 through 37 are tied to the same date in history. The fifth day of the tenth month of the twelfth year of the captivity. Now this is, you recall, also the day when Ezekiel was allowed to speak again. God had told Ezekiel way back when that he would not be able to speak except when God spoke through him until the day that the city fell. The day that the city fell, seven years and two months after he lost his ability to speak, he was able to speak again. Seven years and two months without being able to open his mouth except when God had a message through him. Now within this prophecy so far, and I'm doing a little review because it has been nearly eight weeks since we've been in Ezekiel, within this prophecy so far, the one that began in Ezekiel 33.21, we have seen several things. God uh, spoke through Ezekiel against the false shepherds in chapter 34, verses 1-16. through 16. He gave His promise of the good shepherd in chapter 34, verses 17-31. through 31. Then He continued promising restoration and regathering of Israel. Promising an enlivening of the dead. Do you remember the message on the valley of dry bones? And God promising that those dry bones would be made alive once again. That Israel would be made alive once again. And then right after that prophecy, the prophecy of the two sticks that were made one, and one was Israel or Judah, and one was, um, one was Joseph or Ephraim or the Israel, northern Israel. And Ezekiel put those two sticks together and it was made one stick. God promising that Israel would not just be regathered, but they would be restored to one nation. And now God continues this prophecy speaking to Israel about the destruction of their enemies that will accompany this same time that the dry bones are made alive and that the sticks are brought together. So God, it's it's amazing. God has gone through all of this prophecy. He spoke against the nations. He spoke against Israel. The city has just fallen. After the city's fallen, He denounces the false shepherds. He denounces all of these other nations. And then he gives prophecies of hope. Israel will be regathered. Israel will be restored. Israel will be brought together again. Israel will be saved. And then, in this same time that Israel is being regathered and restored and saved, 
Now God's going to present the destruction of Israel's enemies, which is coming one day. And as we talk about this this evening, please allow me to give you some perspective. What we are talking about in all of these prophecies has not yet happened. It is yet to be fulfilled. And it will not happen until the time that we Christians call the end times. As I teach through these chapters, I've done so within the context of what Israel would be expecting or understanding in their time. I'm keeping the prophecies somewhat contemporary to Israel's understanding. So even though we have been speaking of things that had not happened in Ezekiel's day, and and to this day, to this very day, have yet to happen, things that will happen in the end times in the Millennial Kingdom, I've not really touched on how they fit into all of the end times events, and I've not really touched on how we fit into the broader scheme of things. Over the next two weeks, this week and then two weeks after this, the strategy will remain the same. I'm going to present it in somewhat of an academic, in-the-text, contextual fashion. So you'll need to bear with that. And then the weeks following, as I've mentioned, we're going to get into prophecy. And as we do this several-week mini-series, we're going to look at all of the biblical teaching on, on prophecy, on end times in the Millennial Kingdom, and you'll see just how important Ezekiel's prophecies are to our understanding of what's going to happen. It's not just the book of Revelation, folks, that gives us our understanding of end times events. Uh, Ezekiel is an essential piece, of what, and Daniel, of course, But Ezekiel is an essential piece of prophetic understanding. And so though you may not be catching all of that flavor in the next three weeks, then when we get into the prophecy and the end times um, teaching, you'll see just how important Ezekiel's words are and Ezekiel's prophecies are to our understanding of end times events and particularly our understanding of what God is doing in Israel through the end times event. So please don't get too frustrated if I don't put all of the pieces together just yet. Those of you that are well versed in prophecy and are very comfortable with it will see where all of this fits in and maybe you'll be very comfortable. Those of you who don't necessarily have the best handle on the events of prophecy, this is going to be... You're going to kind of get a taste as I talk about these things and and you're going to be left wanting the the whole picture, the big picture. Just know that it's coming. And um, by God's grace, with all things, we we start at the foundation and we build up, as we talked about this morning even. And as we start at the foundation and we build upon it, it will give us a better and a more full understanding of what what we're reading and how we ought to understand it. And it will also, by God's grace, protect us from some of the common errors in prophetic interpretation, which are everywhere. And um, even if you don't quite agree with me, on some of how some things should be interpreted, you'll at least see where I'm coming from as we build from the ground up. And that will be a blessing, I believe, to all of us. So we begin in chapter 38 this evening, and the Scriptures say this. Verses 1 and 2, it says, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. We begin this section of Ezekiel's prophecy with a call to speak against a specific person. This person's name is Gog. And he is described as being part of the land of Magog and a chief prince, which the land of Magog is a chief prince, and he being a chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now the question as we get started this evening then is, who is Gog and what are these lands, Magog, Meshech, and Tubal. Well, the Scriptures are actually fairly silent on this figure, but they are not completely silent on it. We will see, as we speak on the whole prophetic picture in later sermons, that this man Gog comes up, and it would appear from prophecy, again, I'm just wetting your whistle a little bit, that he is a king of the north, probably the king of the north, as we understand the prophecy of Daniel, the king of the north, And he is the king over the land of Magog, the leader of Magog. Now, it is um, the reason why we are so confident in the fact that Gog and Magog are indeed prophetic 
is because Gog and Magog do come up again. Now, Babylon comes up in prophecy just as Babylon comes up in a physical sense as well. So we could understand some nearer and farer prophetic interpretations here and that is um, quite regular in prophecy. However, Gog and Magog do come up again and it's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8 that we see Gog and Magog come up again. And we see that Magog is described there as the land to which Satan will go after the millennial reign of Christ when he's loosed from the bottomless pit to deceive the nations. Look at it with me, Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. It says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So Gog and Magog come up here in Ezekiel chapter 38 and then again in Revelation chapter 20. Interesting. That's really all we know about this man Gog and and this country Magog. However, Magog does find its way into Scripture again. This is not, those are not the only two places where Magog itself is found. Gog is only found in those two places, but Magog is seen in a couple of other places. I reference you all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, where we find Magog in what's commonly called the Table of Nations, where we read these words. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras. All three of the names found in Ezekiel 38, verse 2, are also found in Genesis 10, verse 2. Japheth was one of the three sons of Noah. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it is well understood in Scripture that the three sons of Noah, used by God to replenish the earth after the worldwide cataclysmic flood, spread out and formed general people groups that are still distinguishable today. So, it is generally regarded that Japheth and his sons became what we might call the Western world. The nations of Europe, Eurasia, and then those nations of North Asia. Nations such as Russia and um, those uh, nations of Northern Asia. The sons of Shem became the Asiatic and Middle Eastern nations. Generally, everything from Babylon eastward, India, China, Japan, all of those um, nations, the Orient, we might say, was really a product of of, um, Shem's line. And then the sons of Ham became the African and Middle uh, Western Middle East nations, including the Canaanites. Their largest uh, nations and largest powers at the time would have been Egypt and Ethiopia and Libya. So that may not be um, entirely readable to you, those maps, but you can kind of get an idea on, that, on your, the left map there that Japheth went north, that Shem went east, that Ham went kind of that southwesterly Um, direction and it was from those generic people groups that every people group came to pass. And you'll notice on that right hand map, I don't know again if you can read that well, but generally speaking in Christianity, our assumption is that Magog, Meshech and Tubal, um, from the basic location of, of where Japheth ended up and then putting some pieces together about the king of the north, Gog of Magog and where, where the king of the north was going to come from. Most conservative Christian scholars believe that Gog of Magog is in fact going to be a confederate of nations led by Russia. And if you um, are understanding what's happening in broader international uh, events today, it should not surprise you if Russia is indeed at the tip of the spear um, against Israel in the days to come because really they're positioning themselves to be that as a nation. So the text tells us at the time in which the prophecies are fulfilled of Ezekiel 38, Magog will be the chief prince over two other 
sons of Japheth, Meshech and Tubal. It's often understood or surmised that these two sons, these two sons that Magog will rule over, are found in the area of Syria and Iran. Meshech and Tubal, if, if you look at the map, uh, and if you can see the map, you have Magog, Meshech, Tubal in that area of Syria, and then as it works its way toward Iran and um, up into Russia is that general area that we would understand to be this area of note. Again, if you've, if you've been reading anything in the news, Syria, Russia, and Iran are all being pretty buddy-buddy right now. And so this is, if, if, if our understanding and study of Scripture is indeed correct, then what we're seeing in history right now is really substantiating our understanding in a pretty amazing way. Verse 3 says this, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Verse 3, the prophecy says that this, that this prophecy is specifically against Gog, the leader of Meshech and Tubal. And the question is, what is it, what is the message that God has for Gog? Well, we see this in verses 4 through 7. God says, I will turn thee back, put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shield, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shields and helmets, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togma, uh, Togarma of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. Be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. God speaks of many allies of Gog, Magog, Meshech and Tubal here. The King James has given, uh, for the most part, their more modern names, the ones that we know definitively. Persia is Pharis, Ethiopia is Cush, Libya is Foot. He, they give the more um, well-known names to us here. Those would be the generalized nations, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya, where we see them today. And these three nations, Foot, Cush, and Faraz, are all children of Ham. So we have seen the children of Japheth, Gog, Mag, or Magog, Meshech, and Tubal, and they are allied with children of Ham, Faraz, Cush, and Foot, what we would know today as Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya, coming together against the descendants of Ham, excuse me, against the descendants of Shem, the child that was blessed in Noah's day, and that would be the descendants of Israel. And what God promises to do is to put a hook in the jaws of Gog, the leader of this confederacy, and to lead him toward a battle. But more than just a battle, it's really more of an invasion of God's very people Israel. And this is what God says in verses 8-13. through 13. Look at it with me. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel which have been always waste. But it is brought forth out of the nations and they shall dwell safely, all of them. So we see God describing a time and He calls this time the latter years. When you read those years in the Scriptures, particularly in the prophetic books, the idea of the latter years, you should be thinking end times. We see that very consistently in the Old Testament that when God is promising to bless them in the latter years, to regather them in the latter years, that something is going to happen in the latter years, God is speaking of that time that culminates God's program. The time just before the millennium. The time that we know as the tribulation, the seven years of tribulation. And so it is that God is speaking against the actions of this man Gog and his country Magog in the final years of this age at the time of the tribulation. And God says that his intent is that he would mislead the man Gog and lay it upon Gog's heart to attack Israel at a time that they are at peace. Did you see how God described the land of Israel in this? 
He said um, in verse 8 that, uh, that He will lead him into the land that is brought back from the sword. That is brought back together from a time of the sword. Well, what's the time of the sword? The captivity of Israel. And gathered out of many people. When God regathers Israel out of many nations against the mountains of Judah or, or bringing them back to the mountains of Judah. And He says, well, these mountains have always been a waste. How many wars have been fought in that little patch of land in Canaan in the last, let's just say, the last 2,000 years since the time of Jesus Christ? How many times have, through the crusades of the Catholic Church, through all of the blood that was shed in, uh, in Islam throughout the years, through all of the wars now between Israel and Palestine, how much blood has been shed in that chunk of land. The land has been laid waste time and time again. One of these days we'll be learning from the intertestamental period again in Daniel. And as we do so, we'll find that there were no less than seven invasions over the course of Jerusalem over the course of the 400 years between when the Old Testament ends and when the New Testament begins. The city had literally been destroyed at least seven times. Incredible. And so he calls this the land that, had, that has always been waste, but that is brought forth out of the nations and is now dwelling in, safely, uh, now dwelling in safety. And then notice verse 11. We'll go ahead and read 9 through 11. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind and thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go up to them that are at rest, that dwell in safety, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. So we see here, particularly in verse 11, that God gets it in His mind that, hey, this land is at peace. They don't have, in our vernacular, they are not in a defensed position. If you were to go to Israel today, and uh, they wouldn't let you do this, but if you were to um, get into their military and to see their readiness factor, you could probably imagine that Israel's pretty ready for attack at any given moment. That they have missiles set in place, that they have uh, uh, um, the, their armies, their standing armies ready to go so that they can be ready. Well, God is describing a time where the villages are unwalled. Where there is there's peace in that land. And if you're familiar with prophecy, when is that the case? Well, prophecy tells us that one of the first things that's going to happen during the seven years of tribulation is that this man who will later be revealed to be a man known as Antichrist will create a peace accord. A seven year peace accord with Israel. We will presume that this peace accord, a part of this peace accord, will be the ability for Israel to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And we can assume that because by three and a half years into the tribulation, the temple is up. And so we see all of these things coming to pass right now. There is a Muslim place of worship on the Temple Mount. And so we can definitely understand that um, it's going to take a pretty amazing act of diplomacy for Israel to get their temple back on that mountain in Jerusalem. And there is going to be a time of peace unlike anything Israel has ever seen since the days of the kings. Since the days perhaps even of Solomon and the peace of his reign. And this will be the environment that will tempt Gog of Magog, knowing that these, this nation of Israel is finally defenseless because they have made a peace accord with the Western world that is now allowing them finally to be finished with their fear and with their war. They will see it as a time, Gog will, of Magog, to increase his own wealth. But the question arises, why would God lay it upon the heart of Gog Please understand the D versus the G. Why would God lay it upon the heart of Gog, of Magog, to come against His own people Israel? Well, we'll see the answer in a moment, but really this shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, we just finished, we're, we're near finishing the book of Ezekiel, we just finished several, several prophecies of God promising that He was going to do exactly that. 
Bring Babylon against Israel. Bring Israel's enemy against him. Lay it upon the heart of his servant Nebuchadnezzar to come against his own people for their sin. So it should not surprise us necessarily that God will do this again. That God will lay it upon the heart of another of Israel's enemies to come against God's people for our dual purpose. First, to chasten Israel back to himself. And second, to be a means of judgment against Israel's enemies. And we'll see that as we continue as well. So it, it is not um, what God told, or this is, this is, excuse me, this is very similar to what God told is, uh, Israel that he would do all throughout the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 8.16, God told them this, Who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water? Who brought thee forth out of the rock of flint? Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good when? To do thee good at thy latter end. So God had spoken about sending droughts and scorpions and fiery serpents, really bringing misery upon Israel with the intent that in their latter end, that the end of all of their chastening would be humble acceptance of God's will and would be greater blessing. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning for those of you that were here, did we not? that God is desiring to bless Israel in the latter end, but He can't bless them until they are right with Him. Which is why the Mosaic Covenant gave way to the New Covenant, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. So in much the same way, all throughout Israel's history, we see God doing things that we would call negative with the intent of using those negative things to do them good in the long run. God does this with us as well. Proverbs chapter 3, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of His correction. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, even as the Father, the Son in whom He is well pleased. It's reiterated in the book of Hebrews that God chastens us because He loves us. And He's chastening us for our best good. That's why we discipline our children, is it not? We don't enjoy seeing our children cry. We don't enjoy seeing our children go through that process of having to be disciplined but it's a means to an end. We are saving them from all of the mistakes of adulthood by chastening, disciplining them as children. We are teaching them how to obey and how to do right early because the consequences when they're young are minimal. The consequences of stealing a cookie from the cookie jar are far lesser than the consequences of stealing a TV from Best Buy. And so if you can teach them not to steal when they took the cookie from the cookie jar, then they won't have to learn when they're sitting in jail for stealing a TV from Best Buy. And so, similar concept of what God does with us. God chastens us to do us good in the latter end. So, verses 14 through 23 describe God's purpose in causing Gog of Magog to come against Israel. In verse 14, God says this, Therefore, son of man, he's speaking to Ezekiel, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus saith the Lord God, In that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel, as a cloud to cover the land, and it shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me, when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. God states that Gog will come up against Israel when Israel is at peace. But note verse 16, because this is very significant. God tells them in the latter days He will bring Gog of Magog against the land of Israel at which point, notice, God says, I will bring thee... Excuse me, right uh, the next line. I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, 
before their eyes. God is bringing Gog against Israel in order that God may be sanctified. That God may be set apart in the eyes of Israel through them. God is going to use Gog and Magog and this confederacy to set Himself up in the eyes of Israel. To glorify Himself in the eyes of His nation. They're going to be a tool in the hand of God for God's glory. So God is going to use Gog of Magog's wickedness and violence as a part of the whole event known as the tribulation of those days which will draw Israel to their Redeemer once and for all. We continue reading in verses 17 and following. Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? And it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground and I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him and overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. You can go to several other prophecies in Scripture and find that the king of the north will in fact be met with hail of fire and brimstone for his attempt to destroy Israel. That God himself will redeem Israel from the, the wickedness and the, the attack of Gog and Magog and amazingly... Guess who's going to take the credit for this victory over Gog of Magog? A man named Antichrist. And it will be at that time that Antichrist will throw off the charade of being just a political leader and he will say, yes, I did this. And he's going to try to set himself on the throne in Jerusalem. And that's when Israel is going to say, oh no, we've been deceived. It's going to be the beginning of their call back to their Messiah, Jesus Christ. We'll get into that in the next, uh, after we're finished with the book of Ezekiel. God says that this man, this man that, uh, is, is the man that has been spoken of in times past by the prophets. The man used by God against Israel. Now, as we say this, it sounds very familiar. It sounds like the way God used Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Gog of Magog will be used in a very similar way, just like Nebuchadnezzar had been used to chasten Israel, but this time things will end very differently. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar went back to Babylon and spent many years ruling and reigning, and in fact, um, if we take the book of Daniel at face value, most likely Nebuchadnezzar became a believer in God. Gog of Magog will not be such. Verse 17 says that Gog is the man that God has spoken of in old time by His servant, the prophets. Can we trace this? Well, yes and no. Of course, we don't see any references to Gog in the Old Testament outside of this. However, we can recognize that Gog of Magog is found at the time of the tribulation. He's also found 1,000 years later at the end of the millennium, right? We saw Revelation 20. Gog of Magog is at the end of the millennium. We see in, uh, at the beginning the king of the north who we believe to be Gog of Magog as well. Um, as he's described here in Ezekiel chapter 38, we see this to be a time uh, where Gog of Magog is in existence as well. If that is the case, if we are understanding this properly, then Gog of Magog is not so much an individual as much as it is a representation of the nations that are against Israel and his leader in much the same way we would see um, God speak of leaders and the nations in other prophecies of Scripture. So that might be the case. That that is what God is speaking of. Or it might be the case that God had spoken through some of the prophets that did not necessarily write down their words. Or it might be the case 
that if we are speaking generally here, well, the Psalms speak of the wicked men that will rise against God only to be thrown down. The book of Joel speaks of the day of Armageddon when the kings of the earth will rise against God and will be thrown down. Isaiah often speaks of wicked men who will rise against God and Israel in the last days and be thrown down. So Gog of Magog uh, might have been referenced in a more generalized sense in Isaiah, in Joel, in the Psalms and such. We can't really know for sure. However, God does say, I've spoken to you of this man before. Gog, I've spoken of you in the Scriptures before. And you are going to be thrown down. As we close out chapter 38, verse 23 says this, Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Through the destruction of Gog and the regathering of Israel, both Israel and the nations will know that Jehovah is God. And this is the purpose. This is why God is bringing Gog of Magog against Israel. This is why the, everything of the tri- happening in the tribulation is happening. It's happening that the nations, including Israel, would know that God is God. Would know that Christ is God's Messiah. On that day, there will be no debate about origins. On that day, there will be no debate about philosophy. On that day, everyone will know that Jehovah is God. They're not going to sit down and try to debate it. It's going to be as clear as day. As we continue into chapter 39, look with me in verse 1. Therefore, thou son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, and the the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee. And I will cause thee to come up from the north parts and I will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and I will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and all the people that is with thee. And I will give unto thee the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field. Excuse me. Give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. And I will send a fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel." God describes a situation where Gog is compelled to go against Israel and then God will destroy a sixth of his military. At the same time, God will cause a fire to fall upon Magog, his homeland, destroying one-sixth portion of that which they will return unto. And he states that the corpses of this army will then be devoured by the birds and the beasts. And in doing so, verse 7 tells us, God will make His name known in Israel and among the heathen. And this is the point, folks. That Israel would turn to God through Christ and that the heathen would know God to be God and be glorified. We continue in verses 8-16 through as we hasten on. God says, Behold, it is come and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both of the shields and of the bucklers and the bows and the arrows and the hand staves and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire seven years. So that they shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any of the forests, for they shall burn the weapons with fire, and they shall spoil those that spoiled them, and rob those that robbed them, saith the Lord God. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place there of the graves in Israel, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers, and there shall they bury Gog and all his multitude, and it shall be and they shall call it the Valley of Haman Gog. And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them, that they may cleanse the land. Yea, all of the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown the day that I shall be glorified, saith the Lord God. And they shall sever out men of continual employment, passing through the land to bury with the passengers those that remain upon the face of the earth, to cleanse it after the end of the seven months shall they search." And the passengers that shall pass through the land when they see, when, when any seeth, seeth a man's bone, 
Then shall he set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried in the valley of Hamongog. And also the name of the city shall be Hamona. Thus shall they cleanse the land. In verse 8, God declares that His decree has gone forth. The promise is made. It will be fulfilled. Literally, we are witnessing God's official decree against Gog of Magog and his allies. And notice how He describes their destruction. So many of them shall die that it will take seven years for Israel to burn all of the weapons, the wood of their weapons. Literally, they won't have to cut down a tree for firewood for seven years. There will be so much wood on the ground from the weapons and, the, and all of the, the things of war. You say, well, well we're kind of past the wooden weapon age, Pastor. <laughs> what is this talking about here? It's a good question. We don't really know. But can I take a stab? If Antichrist can have such political influence that Israel can end up back in its land, might it be that to some degree or another there will be a great disarmament in the world where in manner of speaking as Antichrist is indeed trying to be what Christ is that he will call upon men to take all of their swords and hammer them into plowshares which of course is a symbol in our day of communism, as well as that of the millennium, because Satan is trying to emulate the kingdom of God in his own kingdom. So none of that should surprise us. Would it not surprise us that the Antichrist would broker a tremendous disarmament, particularly of nations that aren't a part of their confederacy, which Gog and Magog and all of that would not be as they come against Israel while Antichrist has a peace accord with Israel? So could it not be that the only thing they would have at their disposal might be actually going back to wooden weapons of old? Might actually be going back to a lesser technology in order to form the means by which to come against Israel? Israel has... There's going to be a time of peace. They may not have any weapons themselves anymore. The disarmament may be almost worldwide. In which case... Wooden weapons would suffice Gog in his purpose. That's my theory. Um, but we don't know how it is that there's going to be wooden weapons in such an age as this. But that's what God says. So, seven years, there will be enough wood to burn uh, because of all of the weapons of the men who have died. But more than that, the Scriptures tell us in verses 14 and 15 that for seven months, Israel will be kept busy burying the bodies of all the men who fell to the power of God. That is a long time just trying to bury bodies. And in fact, they're going to have people. They're going to have people employed. They're going to be looking at the classified listings, new employment opportunities, dead body barriers. And here's your job description. People are walking through the land and they find bones. Oh, look, another dead body that we missed. And they mark it. And you're supposed to go and find those bones and bury it in this valley. And their entire job description will be going from place to place in Israel, finding the bones of the dead of Gog, Magog, and his allies, and burying them in this valley. What a time. And the purpose, of course, will be to cleanse the land. To cleanse the land for what? Well, to cleanse the land for the millennium. But according to verses 17 through 20, as we mentioned, not all the bodies will be buried. That many of these bodies will be eaten Notice verse 17, And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. Ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of he-goats and bullocks, and of the fatlings of Bashan. Ye shall, eat of, of, ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken of my sacrifice which I have sacrificed for you. Thus ye shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men and with all men of war, saith the Lord. So God says, yeah, you know, a lot of these men are going to be buried, but a lot of them, like is mentioned in the text, 
by the time they, the people find them, they're not going to be anything left but bones. That animals are going to come and pick them clean. So much so that the animals are so full, they, they might be sitting next to a corpse and not eating it. They've had their fill. It's a lot of bodies. And of course, we know from Scripture that to be eaten by animals is a, as opposed to a proper burial, is a picture of shame and of indignity as it even is today. And God declares that Gog, Magog, and his allies will suffer this indignity at the hand of God Himself as a just recompense for their rebellion against God and their um, actions against God's people. These are difficult words to read. But what is important, again, is their purpose. Why are they presented? Well, God promises to the beast of the field and the fowl of the air basically a limitless feast upon God's enemies. And He does so for His own glory. Look with me beginning in verse 21. And I will set My glory among the heathen. And all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgression have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and, I, and will, be a, will be jealous for my holy name. After that, they have borne their shame and all their trespasses whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemy lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. That's the promise. That you think that this man Antichrist is going to give you peace. It's going to be a false peace. I'm going to bring you real peace. You think you've got it all together through the law. It's a false devotion. It's idolatry. The real law, the real devotion to God is going to come the day I pour out my Spirit upon you. All the promises of God will be fulfilled. God's faithfulness will be returned to Jacob. Notice he doesn't just say Israel there. He says Jacob the physical descendants of Abraham, not just the spiritual as some people would try to allegorize this. And with that in place, and within this summary in verses 21-29, through I'd like us to find our three applications this evening. Application number one as we close this message, there's much we can draw from it, though it has been a little bit more academic. But let's apply. Number one, folks, God's glory is above all. God's glory is above all. The first thing that we must understand today is that God is high. Not that He is positionally high, for we know that God is a spirit and does not dwell in temples made with hands. We recognize that our attempts to give God position, thinking of Him as being above us in a manner, in a physical sense, is simply the consequence of us as finite creatures trying to wrap our mind and define an infinite Creator. Yet it is no less true that God is high, infinitely high above all that He has made. You are not like God. You are not like God in goodness. You are not like God in power. You are not like God in understanding. He's nothing like you. You are nothing like Him. He is so high above you, you can't understand it. None of us can. You can no more attain unto God than a a mouse can attain unto a lion. A mouse can think he's a lion, but there's a pretty big difference between a mouse and a lion. There are plenty of men out there that think they're God, but they're nothing like God. There are many men out there that think they understand God, but they can't understand God. How does the finite understand the infinite? How does that which had a beginning and an end understand the endless? 
We can't. Try to think about eternity sometime. Try to wrap your mind around forever. You can't do it. You can't understand forever. Our entire existence is based on finity, on finiteness. We can't understand infinity. We can't fathom forever. There's got to be a beginning. There's got to be an end. Forever? God had to have a beginning. Everything has a beginning. Well, God didn't. God is. What do you mean God didn't have? I don't know. I can't understand it because I had a beginning. But it's true, nonetheless. We call God Father. We call God Friend. We call Him our companion. In our finite minds, we see God carrying us through our hard times, holding our hand in the darkness. We know Him to be a personal God and a God who cares for us and a God that loves us. I, I, I do indeed love that poem, Footprints in the Sand. It's a very popular poem in years gone by. I haven't seen it very much recently. I don't go into a lot of Christian bookstores. Maybe it's still around in there. But that, that poem, that, that little um, Footprints in the Sand um, poem that, that uh, I had on many things growing up. And it's, it speaks in the end there of, of the man seeing only one set of footprints and God says, that's, that's the time I carried you. And we see God in this way because we know Him to be a personal God and we, we add these personal touches of understanding so that we can understand our God a little bit. But the fact that God is a personal God makes Him no more high, makes Him no more glorious. Yes, He is our friend, but God forbid that our familiarity with God would breed a disrespect for His awesomeness. God forbid that the fact that we do call God our friend and we have access to Him, that we can come boldly through the blood of Jesus Christ and we think of God as that companion and that one who loves us and that one who sees us through the hard times would cause us to have a minimalistic idea of exactly how much higher He is than us. Yes, God is a friend to us. Yes, God is a companion. But He's not like your friend down the street. He's not like the one that you pick up the phone and talk to. He is infinite God. The glory of God is above all. God forbid that our love for God would erode our fear of God. God forbid that our God's compassion and goodness toward us would overshadow His majesty and cause us to see Him as we would see our best friend or a parent or a sibling and not to see Him as God, very God. In an age where the grace of God has taken center stage at the expense of His other attributes, none of which are at the least bit expendable, by the way, we run the risk of treating God overly familiar. We desire to understand God, and so we have defined God. Thus, perhaps, if we're not careful, placing Him in a box, we talked about that a little bit last week, where we can feel like we can attain unto Him in some form or fashion, but in doing so, perhaps we limit Him. In our zeal to know God, we run the risk of redefining God and thus stripping Him of all of the glory that is due unto His majestic name. Within the scope of this first application today, I ask you these questions. Do you understand and live in light, not just of the God who knows you and loves you and is personal, but the God that is high above, the majestic God? Do you live in light of the manifest glory of God that He is above all? Or has God become so familiar to you that you have lost your fear of Him? Has God's long-suffering and mercy caused you to overlook His holiness and His wrath? Have you sought so carefully to define who you believe God to be that you have put Him into an invisible box, expecting only as much of Him as your limited understanding of Him will allow? and allowing only as much from Him as your limited understanding of Him expects? May I say that again? Have you sought so carefully to define who you believe God to be that you have put Him into an invisible box expecting only as much of Him 
as your limited understanding of Him will allow and allowing only as much from Him as your limited understanding of Him expects. In other words, do you see what you perceive to be the physical impossibilities and say, therefore God won't or God can't? Have we limited our God? Do your actions on a daily basis reflect your knowledge of a glorious and almighty God? Or has your view of God become dim as it fails to be fed by the current of holy fear? Why ask all of these questions? Why reevaluate our understanding and appreciation of God's glory? Well, the reason why is our second application. Because God's glory will be declared by all. God's glory is above all. God's glory will be declared by all. In verses 22 and 23, God tells us that all men will know His glory one day. One day, those who have rejected Christ will witness their own destruction and understand God's glory through God's holy wrath. And on that same day, those who have believed on Christ, God's people, national Israel as well, will witness their own salvation at the hand of God the very God that they had rejected and they will finally understand God's glory through God's unchanging mercy. And so it is in our own lives God's glory will be declared as well. And much like the difference between Gog of Magog and of Israel, God's glory will be declared in you in one of two ways. I speak first to those in this room who perhaps have never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Right now, according to the Word of God, the Scriptures tell us that the wrath of God, the anger of God, abides upon you, rests upon you, because you have not accepted Jesus Christ. You have not believed on the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. The Bible says you're a sinner and you are worthy of an eternal hell, eternal punishment in a place of fire. You have lied, that makes you a liar. You have dishonored your parents. That makes you disobedient. Every man, every woman, every child on this earth has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You have fallen short of God's glory, but God's glory will be declared in you. But the Bible says God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins, to pay the penalty that you could not pay. And then He rose again three days later in victory over death, in victory over the sin, and in doing so, He claimed victory over your sin so that you would not have to go to hell. But like any gift, it's not enough to know that it was purchased. It must also be received by you individually. How, Pastor? Well, the Bible says that if you will but turn from anything else that you are thinking might be a source of salvation, turn from anything else that could get you to heaven, if you would turn from thinking that simply your good works will get you to heaven, well, Pastor, I'm a good person, but you're a sinner. That means you're not a good person. And your goodness cannot get you to hell, or to heaven. It will get you to hell. But Pastor, I go to church. That's not the qualification for heaven. But pastor, I give to my church. That's not the qualification. But pastor, I was baptized as an infant. There's nothing in the Bible that says that's going to get you to heaven. But pastor, I was baptized as I was older. There's nothing in the Bible that says that's going to get you to heaven. You must turn from any and every trust that you are resting in for your salvation and turn completely to the promise of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe upon His name. To put your whole heart and your whole faith in the message and the person of Jesus Christ that He is God. That He was perfect man. That He died on the cross, an innocent man to bear your sin. And that because He died on the cross and rose again the third day in victory over sin in the grave, you can go to heaven through His sacrifice. You accept the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you will believe on Jesus Christ as I have just described, the Bible says you will be saved. This is not a decision anyone can make for you. 
But the Bible says when you do make this decision for all eternity, you will have the privilege of declaring God's glory through His mercy instead of declaring God's glory through His wrath. Because you will declare God's glory either through His mercy as you stand redeemed in heaven or through His wrath as you burn in a sinner's hell for eternity. But folks, I know many of us in this room are believers. The road doesn't end the day you get saved. In fact, it's called being born again. When you're born, you start out as an infant, right? My baby Benjamin is a month old. My son was born. And you know, the first thing, when he came out of the womb, I did not look at him and say, okay, Benjamin, you've got tonight to get cleaned up and then I want you mowing the lawn tomorrow. You're part of this family now. It's time to go mow the lawn. I didn't say that. He's a baby. He has to grow. At the same time, I didn't say, oh, look. Okay, he's born. That means we have fulfilled our purpose. All done. We had our baby. Right? It's not the end of a thing when someone's born. It's the beginning of a thing. It's the same thing in our Christian life. When you were born, that wasn't the end. Result. That wasn't the end. God didn't look at you and say, oh, I've got a new child in the family. Okay, we're all done now. Nor did He look at you and say, okay, brand new baby born, Christian. It's time to go bear every responsibility of a mature Christian adult in the faith. You had to grow. You had to be discipled. You had to be brought to a place of maturity. Just as a child growing in the physical sense, so too a child in the spiritual sense. As a believer, even though one day you will manifest God's glory through your salvation, you also have a second privilege. You have the privilege of starting early. You have the privilege of glorifying God in this life in preparation for the life to come. You have the privilege of building up treasure in this life that one day you can cast at the feet of Jesus Christ and glorify Him even more through the rewards for your work and effort on this life. Every day, in every decision you make, you have two choices. Serving God or serving yourself. There's no middle ground. It's time to sing the song. Just two choices on my shelf. Oh, what will the choices be? Right? Pleasing God or pleasing self. Oh, I would more like Jesus be. Have you ever heard the song? No? Well, you've heard it now. I'll sing it again. I've sung it before. Only two choices. No middle ground. You're pleasing God or you're pleasing self with every single choice you make. We've talked about that in 1 Corinthians pervasively over the past several weeks. Every time you choose to serve God with your choices, you are choosing to magnify God's glory through spiritual reward. Rewards that you will lay at God's feet one day. Every time you choose to serve yourself, you are magnifying yourself above God and you are building spiritual waste. First Corinthians called it wood, hay, and stubble, which will one day be burned in the fire of God's wrath to His glory. So as a believer, as you stand before God one day, you will still have the two choices. Every choice you make on a daily basis will either allow you to glorify God through the reward you'll cast at His feet or to glorify God through the loss that you will suffer before the throne and God's holy wrath as it's burned up on the day of judgment. You'll be saved yet so as by fire, but those things you have done for yourself in this life will not last. Either way, know this. God will be glorified in you. Third and finally, God's faithfulness towards His people is everlasting. We see that in verses 24 through 29. It's very important that we don't lose sight of what God is doing here. God is describing the destruction of Gog of Magog, but only as a consequence of God's mercy, love, and faithfulness to His people Israel. Thousands of years ago, God promised Israel land, seed, and blessing. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school. And our God will perform the promises that He made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. 
God will regather physical Israel to the land as He promised. God will give Israel the land of Canaan as He promised. God will pour out His Spirit upon the nations, including Israel, as He promised. And so, as God puts it in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, all Israel shall be saved. But God's faithfulness isn't just upon national Israel. His faithfulness is upon every believer as well. Since we serve an unchanging God, God's faithfulness towards His people in the Old Testament gives us complete confidence in His faithfulness toward His people in the New Testament. And while God's church has not replaced national Israel by any means as far as uh, the idea of um, salvation and God saving people or anything of the sort, He has given us the responsibilities that were once given to Israel to glorify Him. And we have the confidence of knowing that God will faithfully bring each born-again believer to His promised end. Just as God will be faithful to bring Israel to its promised end. And so if you're a born-again believer, your time does not need to be wasted wondering if God will fulfill His promises to you. Your time would be much better served resting in the promises of God. Victory over sin, of death, and of hell and using that confidence to serve Him with your whole heart. So how are you doing today as we close? Do you recognize God's eternal glory? One day you will glorify God through your salvation, but also through your decisions on a daily basis. Are your decisions building up gold, silver, precious stones to cast at His feet, or are they building up wood, hay, and stubble to be burned in the fire of God's judgment? Are you resting in the faithfulness of God towards His people? His church? Israel? So that you can focus on serving Him with all your heart? Or are you busy, so busy, wondering about God's faithfulness that you you can't get beyond it? These are the questions I encourage you to ponder throughout this week. And may God bless us with understanding as we seek to understand His Word better. Let's pray.